Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Periodic Talks. Hi, I'm Gillian Jacobs. And I'm Deanna Reasonover. This is Periodic Talks. Each week, we rediscover our passion for science, tech, engineering, math, and this week, our favorite place, space. It's STEM for those of us who would DJ a radio station for astronauts. But what should we play? Drops of Jupiter? (laughs) Hey, what's new? How are you? I'm good. I got inspired by this episode to look up some other space facts. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, I found one that really... I thought it was kind of amazing. Have you ever heard of cold welding? No. So this can occur in space. I think it only happened once on a NASA mission. But in space, two pieces of metal can fuse together without any kind of heat or melting required. What? Yes. Do you have to do something to them? They just have to rub against each other. So the only time it ever happened that I could find was in 1991, the Galileo probe, which was sent to Jupiter, where we'd be playing (laughs) Drops of Jupiter, um, had this giant antenna that was supposed to unfold kind of like an umbrella, but it couldn't unfold. It got stuck and it only unfolded partially. And eventually the scientists realized that some of the small metal pieces had cold welded together. So you, it it happened, they have to be very clean, the pieces of metal in order for it to happen. Like the reason it doesn't happen more is if there's any kind of like grease or dirt or debris on that, it will mitigate the cold welding. But um, yeah, so they apparently recommend, you know, they try and use ceramics or plastics or different types of materials because in theory, it could happen. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, you know what this means, right? What? Freshly showered robots can never hug in space. <laughs> They're going to be so lonely. They need to wear ceramic outfits. Yeah, they need to go to the gym first. <laughs> so that, that, I mean... That kind of blew my mind. I guess they can recreate those conditions on Earth. And so they're starting to do cold welding on purpose. Cold welding. (laughs) What's going on with you? Um, I read an article I wanted to tell you about. Yes. Apparently, (laughs) I did not know this. Mount Everest. Do you know how tall Mount Everest is? No clue. Cool. Uh, It keeps (laughs) getting taller. What? Yeah. It's height keeps changing. It keeps getting taller because there's evidence that the tectonic collision that created the Himalayas is actually still happening. Ah. So every so every year they kind of compress those plates are like compressing a little bit more, sending the mountain peak up a little taller. See, this is another thing doing this podcast, I'm thinking way more about tectonic plates than I ever did before. I, You know, it, and it's so, I never thought of something like a mountain still moving, yes. you know what I mean? Like still getting taller, but it also means, <laughs> I'm not going to be the one to tell them, it also means that people are like, I've, I've scaled the summit of Mount Everest, may not have. Not based on it getting taller, but based on people not always being able to get to the actual summit. Oh. And sometimes you just can't, people just can't tell. That they're not at the actual summit. Like they go as far as they think the summit is, but there's a little bit more that maybe you can't see because of cloud or conditions. It's a a problem. I'm still going to give it to them, though. I mean. I'm going to give it to them. (laughs) (laughs) 
Not me. If, if you're giving it to them, you got to give it to me, too. I've walked upstairs and escalators. I think that's incredible. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. You. Oh, I forgot. I also got a voice memo this week from my co-star from the show Community. We've talked about it a bit on this pod. Allison <laughs> Bree. She played the iconic character Annie Edison. And this week she shared with us an excellent STEM fact. Hi, this is Allison Bree. And my STEM fact is that the planet Saturn has 82 moons. The largest one is called Titan, and it's larger than the planet Mercury. Titan is also the only place other than Earth known to have liquids in the form of rivers, lakes, and seas on its surface. Rivers, lakes, and seas on a moon. Isn't that wild? That's awesome. Remember when we were on Bill Nye's podcast and we were trying to stump them and we were like, Jupiter's got moons, name them. And he was like, all of them? (laughs) That's even extra funnier knowing that there's 82. Like, that's like being like, oh, you like music? Name it all. (laughs) You said you're the science guy. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well... The cool guest stars just keep coming on this episode. So we have actor Jack Black and his brother Neil, and they will be joining us for a special conversation about their late mother, Judith. She was an aerospace engineer during the Apollo era. So we get to hear about her life's work and how it impacted two of her children. It's really moving. Also, we hear some very interesting family stories like Jack Black's birth. But first, we're going to talk to Victor Glover, an astronaut who returned to Earth this past spring from the International Space Station. Yeah, it was so cool to get a chance to speak with Victor. And we really wanted to get to know him as a person. What sustains his passion for life and adventure? We get into his extended stay on the space station and what he thinks about his next venture, training for the Artemis missions to the moon. But what he sees as the most important part of his life may surprise you. All right, let's get to our interview with Victor Glover. I didn't have a chance to introduce myself. I'm Diana. Hi, Diana. That's my wife's name. That's my wife. I know. Name. I was gonna. I yeah. was gonna ask if she pronounced it the same way. Yeah, Diana. She has two ends, but yes. pronun- pronounces it the same way. Diana. Very cool. I saw that, and I was like, "He'll know how to say my name." <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. And I'm Gillian. It's so nice to meet you. Hi, Gillian. It's great to meet you too. Looking forward to talking to both of you today. Uh, I feel like the moment you're selected to become an astronaut, um, and Gilly and I can certainly relate to this, you have to get comfortable with being asked the same questions over and over again for uh, quite a long time. Very perceptive of you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What's important to you outside of your job as an astronaut? My family. My daughters. I have a daughter going to college in the fall. She's going to my alma mater. Woohoo! Oh, yeah. Um, I saw it. You, you managed, to, you made her uh, graduation, right? Her high school graduation just yes. happened. Yeah, got yeah, back awesome. a, a few weeks before that, and it was great. Um, and a bunch of family came down so that we could celebrate. And, you know, those things are really important to me. I have been, I have been so fortunate. I've got four daughters, and I've been in the Navy for 23 years, and I didn't miss any births. Uh, my mm-hmm. wife will quickly remind you, my Diana will remind you that I did miss a big chunk of the pregnancies, <laughs> but, but I was, I was home <laughs> for the birth. Um, and I think I may have only missed a couple of, or a few birthdays and major holidays. You know, I spent this Thanksgiving and Christmas in space. If you got to miss one, man, that's the way to do it. <laughs> so sign up, <laughs> sign up for that. Um, but, but I've been, I've been fortunate to be able to, to be with my family, to be there as my daughters grow. And, and so that's important to me. Follow-up question. Um, what's it like being a dad in space? You know, how, how often do you get to talk to your kids? Daily. I mean, it was, the, the connectivity is amazing. I was able to call using like an IP phone, kind of an internet based phone system every day. In fact, multiple times a day, I would sometimes while I was working out the, the, uh, the strength training machine is right next to a, a computer that I could use to to make calls. And so sometimes I'd get up at 5 a.m. and 5 a.m. on the station is right about midnight. And if my wife was still up, I'd call her. And so um, the real limiting factor to how much I spoke to my kids was their interest in speaking to me. <laughs> so I, I got to talk to them all the time. And then we had a weekly video conference and I was very concerned about those conferences not 
being boring. I didn't want my kids like, oh, we got to talk to dad. Let's hold a conversation for 30 minutes or an hour because they felt like they had to. And so we made the decision. We're going to play games. You know, we're going to sing some songs. We're going to do, you know, and then if the kids are done, they can, they, they can just be done. And we played games. And when we would play games, I would say charades was the number one because it was easy for them and easy for me, very minimal equipment required. We would take the whole time. We would go from the start to the end of the satellite coverage and, 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 and we all loved it. And it was funny and, and organic and authentic. And so, but I was able to talk to my kids very frequently. And my, my oldest daughter was on this road towards graduation. She was still applying to and hearing from colleges. And so I was able to, I was able to, to be involved, um, but it also took my wife making sure that I could be involved. You know, she, she wasn't making these major decisions, but she would let me know. And, and so she was intentionally keeping me involved. And, and I think that that was a team effort by our whole family to, to allow dad to still be dad. Now, if something needed to be made, you know, quickly, it wasn't always convenient. And so, you know, they knew that they weren't going to be held up by waiting to have that call with dad from space. But my family as a unit, you know, they still continued to function here without me. And that actually was one of the, one of the most, gosh, one of my favorite aspects of this mission before launch, I asked my daughters to, I need y'all to step up. I just, I need you to step up, take care of each other, take care of mom. And when I got home, I gave all five of them flowers and told them you did. And I'm just proud of you. I, I, oh. you were awesome. And, uh, I just, I'm, I, I was a blessed man. I am a blessed man. And they, uh, they really knocked it out of the park. That is so sweet. You're going to make me cry. I was going to cry during this interview. Wow. See, I got to keep the answer shorter. No. No. No, No, we love it. This is wonderful. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It was truly special. I teared up listening back to it. It got me again. Here, wait. I'll make you laugh. Okay. Okay. We're going to play Space Charades real quick. Okay. Ready? Two words, two syllables. The first word is two syllables. I've never played charades. So okay, you're never mind. I'm not good at it. Okay, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, uh, uh, I, word, syllables. Uh, it's a movie. Uh. So we always like to ask people about their work playlist, but I saw you had a, a tweet about launch day playlists. So I feel like you might have a really special answer for us. Yeah, and I'll, I'll gladly send it to you if you want, but... Um, you know, we were just looking for a, a playlist that would like capture the moment, but it was also fun. And, you know, it was a really intense thing. So it starts off very gradual. Um, I'll just give you a few. We, we had uh, Phil Collins, I believe it's called In the Air of the Night or, or Air of the Night, you know, but we started at the three minute point. You know, we started at three minutes where the drums come in and that was, that was awesome. We had Alicia Keys, Know How It Feels to Fly. Uh, there's uh, Bon Jovi wanted, you know, and it's, you know, people like remember that song a little bit, but there's a, he says on a steel horse, I ride. I really love that, that concept. And so uh, that song was on there and uh, DJ Khaled, I think it's called all I do is win. I don't remember if that's the (laughs) title or not, but that's the part that, you know, that was the song that we actually wanted to play as we pulled up to the launch pad, just because that's what, you know, got the tempo, the heart rate up. And, you know, those doors go up and it's like game time. And that's when your your heart swells and your blood gets pumping. And that's exactly what it felt like that day. This is all riveting. Yeah, you lead perfectly into, you know, we wanted to ask you about your time on the International Space Station. So um, you were the flight engineer on your mission for the ISS. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So you every you have the commander of the ISS and then everyone else on board is called a flight engineer. And I also had one other unique. I just I still can't believe it. I've already done it. I still can't believe it um, because we have these spacecraft now that, you know, for for the last decade, we've been flying Soyuz vehicles with our Russian partners. And now that we have U.S. vehicles again, we have NASA astronauts that can be the commander and the pilot, kind of like we used to do on shuttle. And so I was also the pilot of our of our dragon, which we named Resilience. And that was really unique. That was really special. Wow. <laughs> uh, and you did three spacewalks during your mission, too, right? Four. I actually got four. to do four. four. Yeah. 
the, the fourth Ooh, one was kind one. of a surprise. It was, it was a re, it, you know, kind of a real-time decision to have one more. And so Mike Hopkins and I got to go out the door together for a third time, uh, which was the fifth spacewalk of, of our expedition. And so in a period of about 45 days, we did five total spacewalks. And I got to go out the door on four of those. And uh, that definitely produced some of the most vivid memories, smells, sights, feelings, emotions uh, of the entire 167 days that I was in space. Spacewalks are so unique. I got to follow up about the smells. I know, that's what I <laughs> Well, you know, it's interesting. We live on the space station and it has its own interesting smell. You ask, you know, 10 astronauts, you'll get, you know, 20 different opinions about what the space station <laughs> smells like. And it's funny because I can't remember it specifically. And I don't have a very sensitive olfactory system. I'm, I'm kind of a sloth about that stuff, which I guess is good in this case. But it definitely had a smell. <laughs> when I first showed up, I was like, eh, there's a smell. I can't tell you what it is, but there's something. But after a couple of weeks, you forget about it because you're saturated with it. And so, you know, by the time I come home, I don't even remember it. I'm sure the people that, you know, help get us off the out of the capsule could smell it because, you know, that's what we've been submerged in for, for six months. But the, the spacewalking suit, when we get in there and start to pressurize, it's being pressurized with pure oxygen. And mm-hmm. so the oxygen inside the suit, um, I would say... It just, it just came across as clean. It's like a breath of fresh air. And so you spend a whole lot of time in the suit. You're in that suit for hours before you go out. And then we had spacewalks that were over seven hours. And then you come back in, and as you break it down and take it off, then you start to smell the space, space station smell again, and you're like, oh, yeah, it was nice in that suit. <laughs> so, you know, it's like it goes from that sort of fresh nature to, to be now you're back in the locker room. Okay, yeah, you're back in the locker room. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's pause the conversation right here and take a quick break. And when we come back, there'll be more about working on the International Space Station. And we talk about the Artemis missions to get us back to the moon. Victor is one of the astronauts selected to train for that mission. So stick around. We'll be right back. And we're back. Will you tell us about how your training as an engineer helps you when you're aboard the ISS? Oh, wow. Absolutely. First of all, I don't care where you start. If you're the valedictorian of your high school or, or just a knucklehead kid like me who everybody said, you know, you got to go to college to have a shot in life and you do it. And, and so you're struggling to keep up uh, at times. Engineering as an academic pursuit is, is tough. It's hard. And that's a very important piece. You stick with it. You hold on to that focus. And that's, I say, one of the most important things is you learn how to learn. You learn mm-hmm. to organize your life and your notes and, your, and your, your, your study habits to be able to acquire these challenging things. And so over time, I have built my own like learning philosophy. Airplanes, spaceships, sea ships. I have these three questions asked. How do I use it? How do I break it? How does it break me? All this training and education I've been able to do over time, those are the three questions I ask. And so that comes from having to go through these formal education systems. And then one of the things I think is unique about engineering is synthesis or our synthesis and analysis. I think those two abilities, more than anything, more than any, you know, the, the laws of thermodynamics, you know, the, the, the Pythagorean theorem, more than any one specific concept, it's being able to look at the world and say, all of these things are made up of something that I can break down mm. and, and explain to, to my friends or family. And so being able to analyze, break these complex problems down into chunks that, okay, I can't do all of those, but that one I could do something about. And then being able to take simple pieces and then synthesize solutions. That is to me what a science and technology education can do for you. And so that's, um, that's why I like to say to, to kids, you know, I don't care what you want to do. I've got a daughter who wants to be a singer and performer and actress. And, you know, but I'm like, hey, you still need to get this science and math because you need that foundation, right? It's going to affect the way you look at the world and the way you attack problems, no matter what, you know, music. She loves music. Hey, there's a lot of math and being able to read, write and, and play music. And so, you know, it affects the way that you see the world. And so, of course, there's the specific applications. I was a test pilot. I have 
a master's degree in systems engineering. And so, you know, these technical things, yeah, I've got a little bit of extra training in that, but some of the emotional aspects of this job uh, and the, in the social aspects of this job are also supported by the fact that if you have a degree in science, engineering, mathematics, you had to grind through some things and work through self-doubt, not knowing if you were going to be able to do it or just, just trying to get an A on something that, I mean, all of those, those things that they're not purely academic. They're very much in your headspace. Working through that as well, I think, is an important part of being prepared to do this job. Wow. Okay. I, I mean, I feel like we could talk to you for days and days. This is all so fascinating. But we want to talk to you about the Artemis mission. Can you tell us a little bit about what it will mean for NASA to go back to the moon? Yeah, yeah. Going back to the moon, you know, it's something we, we think about, even though, you know, you said to go back to the moon. Yes, we have been to the moon. Apollo was amazing. Apollo changed the way we think about science and technology. You know, we still refer, refer to things now as moonshots when we talk about people doing amazing, like game-changing things. Our generation has, has done some amazing things already. I think getting, you know, working with these corporate partners to fly, you know, humans to the space station has been an amazing achievement. But going to the moon will be our generation's turn to have literally its own moonshots. And so a lot of us have read about it. I wasn't alive when we did it, but I was very interested in it and reading about it as a young person. But to be alive when we go to the moon, I think, gives all people something to, to look up to, really to look up to. And so I think that's a big part of it because the inspiration part of this, you know, we say that and it's not just this fuzzy like, ooh, rah-rah. Like that inspiration changes the way people study, changes what we study, what majors are popular. And so the academic capability of our country is shifted by that. It changes what the economy is doing. We have all these, you know, people refer to this new space economy. That started somewhere as inspiration. It was in somebody's garage or some laboratory. And so I think that part of going back to the moon can't be overstated. And so for me, I think I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm excited. We're doing so many things right now. Things that NASA has done in part before, but the amount of things we're doing together, Space Station, all these commercial vehicles with Boeing, SpaceX, and all these other interesting partnerships, the rovers that are on Mars, we're doing all of that simultaneously. And so it makes the test pilot in me, the engineer in me say, let me zoom out and make sure that we're continuing to keep safety in the forefront, safety of these systems and the mission, but also the people. Human spaceflight is different, you know, and, and so that for me is a, is a big part of it and a big part of what I think NASA needs to be thinking about and planning and, 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 and adapting our operations to be ready for. It's a different kind of mission. And we haven't done it in a long time, but we're also going to do things in the Artemis program that we've never done. And so when people say go back to the moon, yeah, there's a part of this that's going back to do some things we've done, but we are going to go farther and faster than humankind has ever gone before. We're also going to try to sustain that presence. We're going to try to keep human capability around the moon as, as, you know, until we get ourselves onto Mars. And that is something we've never done. And so it, it makes me want to put my, my engineer analyst hat on and say, let's make sure that we're keeping everybody safe in the process. Mm-hmm. What is it like for you? You've had these experiences that, you know, I can't, I, I try to comprehend it, but I really can't. Do you feel like when you meet people, do, do you feel like they're meeting Victor Glover or do you feel like they're meeting astronaut Victor Glover? And what's that like to see pe- how people respond to you as an astronaut? Uh, you know, I could ask you both the same question, you know, <laughs> how do, I mean, and, and I think a part of it is who they are and what they're where they're coming from. You know, it depends. And I hate giving that as an answer, but, you know, it does. It really depends. But. I, I was at South by Southwest. I'll just tell you this one. So I was at South by Southwest and I brought my family with me and my youngest daughter, I'm signing autographs and there's a line of people at the NASA booth and, and somewhere in there, I took a break and my, my daughter says, dad, are you famous? <laughs> I love that. <it. laughs> you know, this is my girl that wants to be a singer and an actress, you know, so she really latched on it. She's like, 
dad, are you famous? And, and I said, no, people care more. People care more about this patch than this mm. patch. When you say this patch and this patch, can you just say what those two patches are so our listeners will know what you're referring to? The, the NASA patch, the NASA patch, we affectionately call the meatball, is a much more important <laughs> than my name patch. You know, my name patch, it's important to me, but, but the legacy that's behind this NASA patch uh, is so much more important. So for me, you know, whether somebody wants to meet astronaut Victor Glover or dad Victor Glover or, you know, former 16-year-old kid from Pomona, Victor Glover, like, it doesn't matter. I try to remember that I'm all those. Those are all facets of me. And, and so I try to give them all of that, you know, if, if I can. So, um, you know, transparency and authenticity, I think, are an, an important part of this. You know, all of us astronauts are not alike. And that's one of the things that makes the astronaut core beautiful. And so I, I don't know what people are looking for when they meet me. But, you know, I also recognize that because of this patch, because of the legacy that goes with this, I want to make sure this patch doesn't ever take away from that. So it's also mm-hmm. a motivation for me to try to be my best self and to, to put, you know, the big picture above myself sometimes. I try to take care of myself. Health is important to me. And as long as I'm not hurting myself, I try to go out and do what I can for the big picture to make sure that this legacy is protected. Nice. Um, do you, and this will be, I think, our last question. Do you have a sense of what life might be like post-active missions? Wow. I, I don't. You know, I, I think the, the adventure will continue in one way or another. But, you know, I have girls that are, my daughters are, are growing into to young women. And honestly, I really want to focus on that and helping them to, to be whole, healthy, productive young ladies and to, to chase their own dreams. And, and I also would love to help do that for other people uh, that I, you know, if I can influence, especially in communities like the community that I came from in Southern California, growing up in L.A. and Pomona and, and Ontario, places where it may not be so obvious what we're doing at NASA. And if I can support young people that is something I would love to do. I don't know what the future holds, but I think helping other people uh, chase and catch their own dreams is always going to be a part of that. Thank you so much. Oh, this was such a pleasure. It was so great to talk to both of you. As we both try not to cry. Yes. <laughs> both like, no, Thank I, you. This is I beautiful. Did cry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Just one last break, and when we return, a very special conversation with two sons, actor Jack Black and his brother Neil Siegel, about their very special late mother, Judith Love Cohen. We'll be right back. Thank you both so much for doing this. So, you know, we read about your mother, her incredible career, and we try to highlight people on our podcast um, who've done amazing things in the world of STEM. So we thought it'd be a kind of great and special and unique to have you two talk about your mother. And Deanna, do you want to kick it off? Yeah. Okay. So the first question we have is, have you guys ever done an interview together? No. I don't think so, no. Not that I recall. So you have very different careers. Are you very different as people as well or just in your professional pursuits? Just in our professional pursuits, I would say. I mean, we're both pretty family oriented. Yeah. We both have passion for music, albeit Mm -hmm. different genres. Although I do like your Middle Eastern jams, Neil, that you play. But that's not my bread and butter, but I do appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think of us as actually being in a lot of ways fairly similar. We both have a drive to, uh, you know, excel in our in our uh, separate fields. The fields couldn't be much different. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm an actor and, and Neil's an aerospace engineer. Is that your official title, Neil? What, what, what is your official title now? Well, I'm a professor. I, I retired from active engineering a couple of years ago, and I now teach engineering at USC. But, so my current title is professor, but... I was I, I was the chief technology officer for a large aerospace company called Northrop Grumman for many, many years. You guys have a similar age gap that I have with my sister. Uh, she was grown 
by the time I was born. And she went on to study science and I went on to study acting. Um, and I know that there's a little bit of... Uh, we kind of grew up differently. You know what I mean? Like parents kind of change as they have more kids. So how has, how do you think your age difference affected uh, each of you uh, growing up and, uh, you know, how you remember your mom? Well, I'll try it first. Um, So Jack's 15 and a half years younger than I am. And I moved out at 17 to go to college. So we didn't really know each, we didn't really grow up together. We became friends as adults so it's 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 kind of a voluntary friendship in that sense and 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 all the nicer in my view for that um and also remember, of course, although we had the same mother, we had different fathers, so you know just that's half of the home environment right so and and Jack's father, although a very nice man, um is quite a different person than my late father was. What's your view, Jack yeah um. Yeah, even though we didn't have much overlap living together as brothers, uh, like you say, I was only two when you moved out, uh, struck out on your own at a very young age. I, I, I do believe we did have a moment where I did go into your room as a two-year-old and destroyed all of your very sensitive audio equipment. Oh. Yeah, some, <laughs> some tapes that were, were, pre- were precious to you, and I, I was just a precocious child that knew no boundaries. Oh, well, y'all are it too. That's why it's called the terrible twos, right? Yeah. But uh, I remember um, the early days being the youngest and the house was uh, was wild. It wasn't it didn't feel like a normal American family household growing up. Mm. We had, you know, a big house with a lot of different rooms. And our family was successful because both of my parents were engineers and working well and, and we had a good life. But um there was not really the usual like cooking and cleaning and dinner, all of us getting mm-hmm. together for the family dinner around the dinner table. There was a little more chaos. And uh, my parents were really busy with a lot of different projects. And and I do remember my mom being the head of the family in that uh, she called the shots and she would come home from work sometimes with like a full head of steam, like a <laughs> lot of thoughts and a lot of feelings and a lot of you know, emotions, because it was a, it was a, it was, I imagined a very challenging job, but I, I never really understood what she did as an aerospace engineer. Like I, I did not follow in her footsteps in any way. And that's why when I got the call to come and talk about my legendary mom, I got nervous because on the one hand, I knew that she would be thrilled to come and talk to these brilliant young women about you know what it's like to to make it in a man's game in a man's field of aerospace engineer in the in the 50s and 60s you know she was a trailblazer and she was a badass and and so I wanted to come here to honor her and like talk about her the way that she would like to talk about her experience but I don't even really understand her experience (laughs) and that's why I immediately called Neil and said dude would you come and do this with me because you actually know about her expertise in a way that I don't. Perfect segue, Jack. Anil, can you tell us about your mother's career and her work as an aerospace engineer? Yeah, well, let me start with her at age 19. She was a freshman in in, uh, college in Brooklyn. You don't really study engineering as a freshman. You study math and science to get ready to study engineering. And she was also um, a ballet dancer. She danced in the core of the Metropolitan Ballet Company in New York. She always made a point that she wasn't really a very good ballet dancer, but she liked dancing. And she met a man a couple years older than her who was graduating as a senior in engineering from NYU. And he had a job offer in California, and she desperately wanted to get out of the Jewish ghetto in Brooklyn. And um, he actually went and negotiated to get her a job in California as an engineering associate. And when he proposed, he also gave her the the letter showing that he had a job for her in California. So he he, he was a good salesman, and he knew what it would take to close the deal. So she moved out to California and they got married. And for the next 10 years, she ran kind of a triple life. So she had her first three children. 
She worked full-time at first as an engineering associate, meaning basically a student who was doing engineering work. Um, and then in 1957, she earned her bachelor's degree, so she became a full-fledged engineer, but continued going to school. She didn't get her master's degree until 1962. Now, she went to night school at USC for both graduate and undergraduate, and she says that she never saw another female engineering student. USC's told me that actually she was the eighth woman to be accepted into the School of Engineering. That Sorry, that year or in history? No, no, ever. Wow. So that's where she started. And what she did for the first part of her career um, is what we would call guidance systems. So um, ways of guiding spacecraft or missiles or satellites so that they would fly where they were supposed to fly. So uh, a device uh, called a gyroscope that measures motion and then a small computer that figures out, are you on the right path and keeps the thing flying on the right path. And so she did that for missile systems um, and she did that for satellites. And then later she did that for the Apollo program. So this all ties back into your birth, Jack, right? There, there's, a, uh, there's a famous now, right, story. Could you guys tell that, us that story about the day you were born? Well, that's what I was going to ask you, Neil, because the space race uh, all leads to that uh, fateful day on 69 when the Apollo astronauts landed on the moon. And my mother was pregnant with me in the lead up to that l- lunar landing, and she was working uh, all the way up until the delivery is, isn't that right? Right. Well, she was no longer working on the Apollo program by then, of course, because the Apollo program was done and they were launching, right? So, um, right. So I think the first moon landing was July of 69. One month before I was born. Right. So you were born in August. So she was definitely still working, which she always told me. Um, and her, I, I know the person she was working for at the time, too. Um, and he confirmed that she literally showed up at work the day that you were born. Um, she was working on some problem, and when it was time to go to the hospital, she you know, took the computer printout with her. Later that day, he called her, and she was working on some problem, and he had to say, I solved the problem. And oh, by the way, the baby was born. <laughs> so. That's my mom. <laughs> I want to get a little bit drilled down into her work on the Apollo um, program. She helped create the abort guidance system, correct? Yeah. So um, she did two things on the Apollo program, and my father did one. And all three of those things contributed to getting the Apollo 13 astronauts home. The abort guidance system is kind of the main thing that she worked on. We had really, really limited computing capacity in those days, right? And so the things that we could do today to automatically calculate a route in real time were just completely beyond the computing capacity of those days. So as much as possible, everything was pre-computed. And the way you did guidance is you just had a device, like this gyroscope I mentioned before, that measured where you were. And all you tried to do was keep close to the pre-computed course. You would measure where you were, and then you would make little adjustments to try to stay on the course. And there was one part of the Apollo mission where you could not do that. The way the Apollo mission worked is there was a, there was a, a capsule called the command module that the three astronauts were in that would fly out, and it, it just circled the moon. It didn't actually land on the moon. It just circled the moon. And then stuck on the front of that was a separate little device called the Lunar Excursion Module. And that's what actually flew down to the moon and flew back. You know, the thing would land vertically like a helicopter, but it needed a reasonably flat and uncluttered space. It couldn't be full of holes and it couldn't be full of boulders. And so you couldn't pick the exact landing spot from the Earth, right? You just couldn't see that well. Even today, we couldn't see that well. So for the last 30 seconds, last 60 seconds, it was at, there was actually one of the astronauts who had a little window and he would look out the window and he had a stick and he was actually free flying the, the lunar excursion module for the last 30 or 60 seconds, which meant that it was, he would look out and he would see where the rocks were and he would try to fly to uh, 
a flat spot. Wow. Right? That's and, high stakes. Uh, that, yeah, it's very high stakes, but they didn't have very much fuel. And so the way it would work is that if when it got down to that where there was only five or six seconds of fuel left, the rocket that was going to fly them back up to where the third guy was in orbit would fire automatically. And that was called an aborted landing. And because he had been flying free, they could not pre-calculate the route back up to join their colleague. Okay, now they never had an aborted landing. But what happened on Apollo 13, where you know there was an explosion on the way out, and so they they lost two things. They lost the engine that normally would have done all the burns to control their flight back. And they lost the power supply for the whole command module where the three astronauts were, including the guidance computer that was supposed to guide them on the way back. So the three astronauts had to, and by the way, they also lost the power, which meant that they lost the heater. So they would have frozen to death, right? So they moved in, the three astronauts moved into the lunar excursion module, which had its own power supply. Um, but the main thing is now they needed an engine to do some small course correction rocket burns to get them home. And they needed a computer to guide those rocket burns. And the only engine they had was the engine that was supposed to do the actual moon landing. It was called the Lunar Descent Engine, which my father worked on. And the abort guidance computer, which of course our mother worked on. So um, it was those, as it happened, those, those were two of the things that helped get the Apollo 13 astronauts on. I'll tell you another little funny story about Apollo 13. So, of course, our, my brother is a, an actor, and he, one of his movies is this thing called Orange County, where he, he collaborated with a, a young actor named Colin Hanks. So, of course, Jack is always kind enough to invite all the family members to his premieres. And um, so I arrived a few minutes early and I walked into the lobby of the, it was a theater that was on a movie set. And, and so I walked in, there was my mom talking to some guy, I didn't know who it was, and the, just the two of them in the middle of the lobby. So I walked up and they were deep in conversation about Apollo 13. I, I, I didn't want to interrupt this conversation, um, so I just kind of stood there and, 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 and finally, after about five or six minutes, one to interrupt my mom while she was in the midst of conversation was impossible, right? She, because she was, she was intent and nonstop. And after about five or six minutes, I finally figured out that this guy who she was lecturing was, was Tom Hanks. <laughs> Star of Apollo 13. Who had, all, who, had, who, had, who had come there, of course, to see his son, his son, his son's movie premiere. So That is amazing. Do you have a sense of what your mom considered her career highlights? Like if she, what would she want us to know about her professional life? The thing that always struck me about our mom was that she was absolutely determined to do always exactly what she wanted, uh, whether it was to, you know, be an engineer or go to college or get married at 19 or move away from her parents or write books, you know, so when she graduated and she wanted, you know, or to fight for better treatment for women in the workplace, I mean, or anything, she just wanted her way, don't we all, right? But but she was completely unafraid about just doing it, and she didn't care what people thought or what other people wanted. She was really determined to do what she wanted, and she lived her life to her last day, as, as much as possible, doing what you wanted. Jack, what, what do you, is, you I agree you, with that entirely. And, and uh, also something that I think about with her, her, uh, her journey was her f- fighting through adversity. She was a champion of, of, uh, of women in the workplace early on. And she tells stories about how when she was in college in Brooklyn, uh, that she was not allowed to to go into one of the one of the classes that were it was like an elite uh, mathematics or engineering class. I can't remember what the name of the class was, but she was very proud of the fact that she still won the scholarship from that school, even though she was not allowed to go into that class. And she had a chip on her shoulder, I think, from early on that like, yeah, I can do this. I can do it, and I will do it. And she was very 
tough. And, you know, maybe some people would say that she was bossy, but I think it was born of a fighting spirit that she needed to survive in that world. And then, you know, as she as she climbed the ladder, it might have been a little harder than it would have been had she been, you know, Larry Cohen instead of Judy Cohen. But she she made it and she uh, she obviously was able to deliver some of that spirit into Neil and his his career. I, however, was unable to get any of those mathematical genes. I don't know what happened. It's the luck of the draw. Well, yeah, but you have your own your own skills that you've developed. Can I add two more things that she might have wanted to add? The Hubble, you can't not talk about the Hubble, can you? Well, that yeah, is... she worked on the ground station, not on the, on, not on the satellite. Right, so, but so, still, if anyone asks me, I say that she built the Hubble Space Telescope. Yeah, so she, <laughs> okay. she worked on the, the, it's called SOGS, the Science Observation Ground Station. You can look it up on the web which is the ground station that gathered all the data from the Hubble and from some other NASA satellites to make the data available to scientists around the world. That was the last thing she worked on before she retired. It's a pretty cool thing to have on your resume. Yeah. We're still getting high-def photos from that telescope. 30 years later, 40 years later. Yeah, and this year, if all goes well, NASA will launch, finally launch the replacement, which is also built by Northrop, um, and uh, it's called the James Webb Space Telescope, and my mom had nothing to do with it, but it's it's very cool. After after all these years, they're finally getting ready to launch a replacement. Are they are they all done with it? And they they just need a Tesla to throw it up there? Yeah, it's all done. It's in NASA's hands. They're doing some final tests. Um, That's exciting. It's but very cool. I'm going to be sad to see uh, Hubble be replaced by a bigger, better telescope. Yeah. Because I love it. Every time there's another Hubble photo, I feel like there's mom. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, you said, you, you said there was another one, too. Oh, the other one? Just being a part of the uh, Society of Women Engineers. I just feel like we should give them a shout out because uh, she was an early member, right, Neil? Yes. And she was actually the president of the, of the L.A. chapter for a while. So, Which is awesome. We gave to them uh, when my mom passed. We... we uh, Wanted to support them in her honor, and and uh, yeah, I'm sure she would want to give them a shout out. And also, loving mother of four, raised four happy, healthy kids uh, that were able to pursue their dreams, and, and uh, the fact that she was able to be such a trailblazer in the in the professional world and raise kids, albeit in an unorthodox way. We had a little bit of a chaos house, but it was... It. Yeah, yeah. Well, she was absolutely determined not to be a normal... She never learned to cook. Well, she made a good spaghetti. There was yeah. one good dish that I always asked for that so, mama spaghetti. So it was, it was kind of a matter of pride with her that she didn't know how to run a vacuum cleaner and she didn't cook doing, the way, doing things the way she wanted it. She was determined not to be a, a normal mom. By the end of her career, do you think your mom accomplished what she set out to accomplish in engineering? What do you think, Neil? I don't know that she had an endpoint. She didn't have a ceiling in mind. Mm. Yeah, she didn't have an endpoint. Um, you know, my view of life is that it's about the the experience and not about an endpoint. Um, and I think that she would kind of view it you know, live each day for fun and, and accomplish what she wanted to accomplish. Um, were there things she would have liked? You know, I think she would have liked to have been promoted faster and to higher levels in the company um, and so on and so forth. But uh, she was definitely a live each day as it comes kind of person, I think. What do you think? Jen? Yeah, she was ambitious. I mean, she never said it, but I'm sure she if 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 she could have gone all the way to where they had to change the name of the company to TRWC for Cohen. She would have done it. She would have grabbed it. But she lived a full life, and I don't think she had any any regrets with, with you know, how her career went and how, how uh, you know, she would be remembered. Thank you both so much for this. This was very cool. Yeah, this was a real pleasure, a real treat. Um, this is the first time we've gotten to do this where we have, you know, someone's children tell tell their life story. And I think it's a really great way to pay tribute to your incredible mother. 
Well, I hope we did her proud. Mom is listening. I'm sure she would be all over this thing, and she would she would be thrilled that you guys asked for her story to be told. So thank you. This has been such a cool episode. It's really a family affair. It totally is. I didn't expect, I mean, I knew Jack and uh, Neil would be talking about their mother, but I didn't anticipate how much we talk about family in our interview with Victor Glover. And Mm -hmm. I thought it was really beautiful to hear him talk about being a dad. And I could just feel how much he loves his daughters and his family. We got to actually briefly meet one of his daughters, uh, who she happened to be at NASA that day. I think she was going to interview him. I used to go to work with my mom, but can you imagine going to NASA, going to your dad's work, and it's you're going to NASA? Oh, yeah. Oh, that would be great. I have to tell you, though, I used to, my mom used to take me to work, too, and she worked at the post office, and it was great. And I was like, you know, I loved it, but also... I got I was a kid that got bored really easily. So um, they would give me jobs like they would give me like mail to throw. You know what I mean? Like just like the circulars, not yeah, like yeah. the actual mail. But um, every now but I would hide, you know, because I wasn't supposed to be there. And so I would hide back where the P.O. boxes were, like on the other side of it. And sometimes when people reach in to get their mail, they accidentally like push the mail out the other side so I would kind of like knock it back and they'd be like thanks and I'd try to put on a, like a grown up voice I'd be like you're welcome like, oh my god <laughs> they just see this little eye staring at them from the other side of the box that's amazing alright <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, please 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 rate and review us on Apple Podcasts <laughs> We love reading the reviews, but we need some more. I, you know what? I do actually really love the reviews because I love to see what episodes people connect with, you know, who you listen to the show with. And some of my favorites are when I see parents are listening with their kids and hearing that you put the show on as you go about your day. That's really inspiring for us. Yeah, we love making the show, but we also love hearing what really resonates with you and why. So please keep those reviews coming. And if you haven't yet, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Periodic Talks. This podcast is produced by Tamika Weatherspoon. Our engineering and theme music is by Brendan Burns. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson, and we get research assistance from Juliana Torres. Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Josephine Martirana. Periodic Talks is a production of Stitcher. Stitcher.